Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on October 15th, 2010. I'm Steve Mursky. When you think of Harlem, maybe the famed Apollo Theater comes to mind, or the music and literary movement known as the Harlem Renaissance. Well, there's a new Harlem Renaissance in science. A couple of Saturdays ago, I headed to the corner of 125th Street and Adam Clayton Powell Boulevard for a science fair under the auspices of the Harlem Children's Society. The society is the brainchild of molecular geneticist Sat Bhattacharya. I spoke to him at the outdoor poster session. Tell me about this event and give me the history of this entire project. Uh, well, I started the program ten uh, years ago uh, at the Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in my laboratory uh, with three students, and uh, what I saw was a serious underrepresentation of various minorities uh, in the field, principally black and Hispanic and Native American. They're less Native American uh, students in New York City, but elsewhere, but at least here. So, and since um, I realized that there was a serious underrepresentation, and what I also know that there's various other opportunities in college level in universities that the students can are encouraged to take, uh, take science but there was something missing so obviously the students are not coming into science so the problem I thought lay even earlier on now I'm not trained as a high school teacher so I thought with my skills and what I can do is probably uh, what I believe also is a hands-on approach to anything so my field is science and technology uh, so uh, my work is uh, uh, circulating tumor cells where I isolate cancer cells from blood of patients and isolate their DNA and RNA and try to sequence them and try to devise treatments for cancer treatment and therapy so uh, so it started off very small with taking just calling a, uh, having a, a uh, a phone book and calling up two schools in Harlem here and one in uh, New Jersey and pick up uh, and tell uh, when made an appointment with their principals and science teachers and ask them to pre-select some of the good students and the only criteria that I left was that they have to be below U.S. poverty guidelines. At that time I didn't know what it was so if they qualified for free lunch then it meant you know they're uh, they are below 30,500 for a family of four. So there wasn't really an ethnic guideline. There was a economic. Uh, an economic guideline. Exactly. And and that is very important for me That be, uh, because it's not just a black society. It's not a Hispanic society. It's not a Native American society or not a white society or any other society. So it's based on economic criteria. And what I firmly believe is if, if one is black or Hispanic or, or a female or a male, uh, or a Native American, you know, it might, they might be compromised uh, equally. So, if sometimes the males, for example, African American males or certain Hispanic males are even endangered in science. So, uh, one of the things that I also realized was not to compromise the field of science. We cannot, I cannot have someone come into my lab or some of my other colleagues' lab and send students just because I want to do a public good, but I have to be responsible to my own profession, which is science, but yet raise the level bar up and 
encourage more students in. So uh, the idea was to pick up the best and the brightest from the schools. So the school system uh, picks up their bright students, but they have to be below U.S. poverty guidelines. They have to have a perfect attendance so that when they come to my lab or go to someone else's lab, they're going there uh, at certain hours. Uh, and there's a certain professionalism. And then we teach other things, too, that come along with it. And uh, and then put them through a rigorous summer program where they are uh, uh, working in the lab from morning 9 to evening 5 or whatever time at least. Uh, and then uh, moving from there. So uh, the first three students now are all uh, medical graduates. Uh, one of the students, uh, in fact, uh, the first student is a just got her MD uh, last year. Uh, the second student got his MD. He's doing his PhD. Uh, and uh, the other student was is here. Um, uh, she just graduated from Swarthmore. She just finished her. Uh, she's a registered nurse from Columbia. And um, and over these years, uh, from three students, uh, this year we have about 800 students from over 125 uh, schools. And um, did you ever expect that kind no, of growth? No. That was, I was going to be happy with my own little students, like my own little lab, and try to feel good about it and share some good work with some of my colleagues and friends and family, and feel good about the whole thing. And you know, this all sort of it catapulted. It, it took its life of its own. So some of my friends and colleagues got interested. They wanted to get because they saw these kids are you know they are black or Hispanic or and they're still doing good and they come to the lab regularly. They they're not the regular preconceived uh, notions of you know oh um, they're coming from Harlem or South Bronx and. Um, they don't know anything about science. They are poorly educated, and that sort of uh, it breaks up all those barriers. And it, it started off uh, my colleagues in uh, Sloan Kettering, and then I realized that as more and more as it became bigger and bigger, so from three students to fifteen to fifty to hundred to hundred and fifty, and then three hundred, and that um, the field is bigger and wider. And not everyone is interested in cancer research. Not everyone. So then I started calling up my friends and colleagues in other hospitals and other areas. You know, okay, it's Columbia, Cornell, and you know, and I also belong to various other societies. So I've been tapping my own uh, private contacts and resources through uh, through uh, various societies that I belong. You know, as scientists, we all go to those conferences and all. And eventually, as the program was beginning to grow. Um, I realized that, you know, the thing also is I have friends elsewhere. You know, the uh, I've uh, I've a friend, for example, where I swim uh, goes to the Hopi Reservation or used to go to the Hopi Reservation in Arizona, build houses. And for years, I used to, you know, I wanted to go to the Hopi Reservation myself. That was the agenda. So, but then I he was helping the elderly build houses. I said, okay, you're building houses for these senior citizens. What about the younger generation? We have a program for the last few years in Harlem. Let's start something here, in the middle of nowhere in uh, the Hopi Reservation, Arizona. And that's, so we started off six years ago, and now we have a substantial program for the last uh, six years now. So That's great. And and do you, do you hear from the kids that when they interact with their peers they kind of spread the the science seed around 
Exactly. That's the whole idea. So it's a top-down approach. So we take the best and the brightest, they come during the summer, and then in the fall they go back to the school systems. So when they go back to the classrooms, they talk about their own research, their high-tech research of isolating you know, cancer cells to space technology. We've sent students to NASA, uh, or they do uh, nanotechnology or you know, uh, physics or chemistry or you, know, you name it, agriculture, uh, and when they go back to their classrooms and talk this over among their peers, more peers get interested because it is in a totally different area. Many of our kids, uh, especially this year, uh, the parents make less than $15,000 a year. Many of them are unemployed. They're the only members in the household that make any money. The other thing that I realized was to give them a stipend. So every year, uh, every student gets uh, 1500 to $2,000 as a stipend. It's been very difficult this year and last year because of the economy, and therefore I make a very strong plea. So whosoever is listening, it's very important that we need this to, uh, uh, to keep our, our future alive with uh, with our students uh, and uh, just one instance um, seven years ago I went to a school I, I, for the new schools I go to the schools because in my mind I need to place where the students are coming from and then uh, and uh, so I don't go to 125 schools but I go to the new school I make an attempt to go to the new schools uh, and interview the students there so about seven years ago I went to a school right here in Harlem in the west uh, west Harlem and um, I went there to interview students, and the place was buzzing with uh, uh, with reporters and uh, TV and all that stuff. And after uh, standing for some time, the principal came out and said, you know, um, can we have the interview at some other time? Because we had an unfortunate incident in the morning, early morning today, and one of our students was shot and killed. And that student was supposed to be, uh, you were supposed to interview that uh, that kid uh, today, and he was top of his class. And that's exactly proves my point is the best and the brightest is easier. Uh, a creative mind will always find creative ways of engaging themselves. And if we cannot get the creative mind engaged, they will find creative ways to destruct themselves, either themselves or the surrounding. So it's not only just in New York City, but it's a global phenomenon with the whole terrorism and all that stuff. So we have to be re- more responsible towards a more creative mind and engage them to cre- uh, get their creative talent and put them in place. And we do that with science, but it can be done in every other field. But uh, so. That's why they succeed. They have to be put in a certain structure. So in the summer, over these years, as it has been evolving, um, we, in the summer we also have our uh, summer lecture series. So uh, four days a week they are, at least four days a week they are working with the individual mentors in the laboratories. And the one day um, from 10 to 4, we organize lectures and seminars where all students are required to make post, uh, presentations uh, five to ten minute presentations on the research. We invite other um, speakers and Nobel laureates and you name it, people come and talk. Uh, And all the students are required to uh, submit their work um, online to us. So this prepares uh, them uh, to develop writing skills, comprehension skills, and submitting things on time. And that's absolutely critical because we we know that there is a 40 to 60 percent dropout rate in African American, Hispanic, and Native American students in the first two years of college. The reason why is not only they are not well prepared in the high schools, but they are not well prepared to make that next jump and take uh, um, uh, uh, take notes and submit everything on time. And if they don't know, go and seek out help. People are ashamed because they they are 
uh, they are told that they are top of the class in their respective schools, but when they go to um, Cornell or any other uh, university or college, they're they're middle, they they hardly know anything. This is the plot of uh, In the Heights on Broadway. <laughs> exactly. So, and uh, and that is why I think this program has been succeeding is because we sort of enforce that, and people scream. The new students who come into the program. They have a tough time. It's almost like a boot camp, and we in, uh, uh, we ensure that they follow this. And then uh, um, managing a crowd like that, they have uh, we have uh, uh, we have um, uh, groups, for example, and each group. So we have say twelve groups, and each group say uh, twenty to twenty-five students per group, and each group has a group leader and subgroup leaders. So. Uh, so our students keep on coming back. So over the years, what we have seen is students keep on coming back into the program. Some students, even in the undergraduate years, they have come back. So they are either in Columbia, Cornell, uh, Dartmouth, Swarthmore, MIT, whatever they are. Either they come back here, and and so we have about 20 to 25 percent of our students now have become undergraduate. Uh, the other important thing is this is sort of a pre-university level interaction happening even before they get to university only because the students are even at the lecture sessions for example the students are coming from 125 schools so a, a african-american student in south bronx is interacting with a uh, caucasian student from say upper west side manhattan to a uh, to someone in uh, say a chinese immigrant from uh, uh, from um, I say Queens, and this is this is one of the things I uh, we require the students is to write about their experience, and an overwhelming majority of the students talk about the social app impact that they have. Science is okay. Anyone can do science and we can put a rigor into it. But what is more important is that social impact where the students, and that they get it in the university, because at the university the students are coming from everywhere, all over the U.S., all over the state, all over the world. But then they have become adults. Here, they're coming as young as 14 onwards. So they're very impressionable. So in a school where 90 or 100 percent are African-American or Hispanic or Caucasian or, say, Asian or whatever, now they're mixing with other people. And that is the more important thing, is uh, encourage that sort of ability to interact with one another uh, with the common uh, thing of science. In talking to some of the kids, um, they seem very aware of the fact that science may lead them to a good job someday right. and it's an it's an underdeveloped area and and it's economically good in two ways because it's good for their personal economy it's also good for the country's economy to have more scientists exactly and the reason also with the hands-on approach is many of the skills that they learn during uh, during our programs in the high school time, they can do summer jobs while in campus. So uh, that could be like a side thing. So they can still earn their money on the side. And that prepares them. Anyone who uh, who does, uh, uh, say, research in my lab, isolating cells, and isolating DNA and sequencing them, uh, they can uh, continue that work uh, in some of the laboratory because the laboratories need technicians so someone can do a part-time job while still taking courses so it means it's like a, a, a having a job while still in college but at a higher level not just uh, standing uh, in front of a um, 
uh, podium or in the library. That's good too. But this is on the on the level of uh, you know their. Uh, making them prepared for the future, and uh, at this, uh, and what I, what I expect is not all our students to be scientists. Of course, secretly I wish that, <laughs> but I know the reality is this will remain in their fields, uh, in their uh, in the back of their heads. And even if it doesn't directly come back, you want your business people to understand science. You want your politicians to understand I mean we have had plenty of good examples lately of politicians who clearly have no idea what goes on in science exactly exactly that's and that's uh, absolutely in fact you hit it right there in fact uh, now every year we have we never our, our students never graduate what I also realized because of the background that many students uh, are inner city students or even uh, urban students like the Hopi Reservation or any other um, it's uh, they come from heavily compromised backgrounds family backgrounds either it's drugs in the neighborhood a family a single parent homes whatever so this becomes a very strong this is the other family that they can be a part of uh, and the old boys club of, you know in the university this happens much earlier old boys and girls club even uh, earlier in life so we have uh, so instead, instead of having a graduation ceremony we do an induction ceremony. So anyone who who is a part of our program starts with being inducted, and so we have a celebration. We have song and dance, and we have uh, we have few students, our top students, making presentations. So we raise the bar for the incoming students. That look, in our program, this is what we expect. So we have like two or three students making their power presentations, PowerPoint presentations. So they know what is to be expected all throughout the summer. So we don't do that. Students, get, they're the horse's mouth. They will talk themselves. And then we have these politicians come in as well. So we, um, this past summer, on July 7th, we had uh, um, we had 25 uh, congressmen and senators and um, council members and candidates and, um, uh, and uh, uh, one of the Nobel laureate, the president of uh, Stony Brook University. I also advise Senator Gillibrand uh, and science and education. So it's very important for politicians to understand the importance of science and technology, not because it's it's a good thing to talk about, but uh, especially in uh, in a, in in an age of today where we are in a globalized economy where competition. Is, I tell my students, if you cannot work hard uh, by the time they will graduate the jobs will be taken away. You have to constantly work hard and think creatively and engage yourselves in a way in a globalized economy. You can you can be here and get your work done elsewhere, but you have to creatively engage yourself in a uh, if you if if you take science in a scientific way using science uh, uh, tools to do your work and creatively be productive. And that's what this sort of teaches. And if anybody is interested in more information or getting involved financially, how can they get in touch with you or, or the organization in general? Uh, well, they can either go to our website, um, they can either Google Harlem Children's Society, uh, or uh, they can call um, uh, 646-643-8543, or go to the website and uh, register. We usually start with, uh, uh, I interview the students uh, in, uh, in the spring, so in February, March, April. So I reach out to the uh, science teachers and principals. But if a student or the family is interested, and that's the other thing that the fair deals with, is for the parents.
interest for the community that they have to go back to their schools and tell them that my son and daughter is interested in science. And so, um, uh, and so uh, then the teachers, con- uh, uh, they contact us. And just because we are a globalized world, uh, this all happens in real time. Uh, we organize the street fair simultaneously in New York City, in the Hopi Reservation in Arizona, in Mexico, Kenya, Tanzania, Ethiopia, uh, India, and New Zealand at the same time. And this happens in real time, so uh, there's uh, uh, the time and the space has no boundaries. So, um, you know, the Hopi Reservation is three hours behind, uh, Kenya is seven hours ahead, uh, and New Zealand is 12 hours ahead. So, but yet, what, uh, what uh, um, is more beautiful is students participate in similar things and interact with one another across different time zones. And that's the exactly whole. what professional scientists do exactly. as well. Right, right. But this is a, a, a community event that happens outside the realm of uh, a university environment. And then uh, over the years, as the concept was evolving, um, uh, this is just an idea to get the science out. Then you have to get the idea in motion, and therefore the concept of the parade evolved, science parade, because the whole idea is to give a a certain philosophy uh, some traction. So, so when the parade starts from one location to the other, the people on uh, uh, on the sidelines are interested in what's uh, what's going on, and so then they are dragged onto the uh, the fair side. So um, that's the whole. Uh, well, let's not say dragged on. They are encouraged to. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, by the way, I ran into some of the bands on the subway coming down here. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, there's some big bass drums in the subway station on 125th Street. I see. Well, thanks very much for your time. Appreciate it. Good luck. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. I spoke to a few of the young people who had done research and created posters about it. Here are a couple of them who looked at the potential of algae as an alternative fuel source. You are Mitchell. Mitchell Haverty. And Angus. Angus Fong. Now, tell me about this project and how you got involved in it. Mitchell? Well, it's a hot topic today how... There's so much pollution, and greenhouse gases are basically destroying our Earth and our environment as we know it. So we were trying to look at the main cause, and what we found is that it's mainly the fuel source. And we wanted to find a nice, eco-friendly or green solution to all the pollution problems. So we wanted to come up with an alternative fuel that's... That's like very abundant, but it's also very efficient. And what did you guys come up with, Angus? Well, we came up with algae. Uh, one because they th- they drive thrive on uh, carbon dioxide. Um, another thing is that you can find algae anywhere in any moist place. And so, in this experiment, we found out that algae can be used as fuel. So later on in um, future, well, now even uh, that if we, we can use algae into cars or any type of uh, vehicle or machinery that use uses uh, ethanol or any type of fuel. So, yeah, that's what we found. How old are you? Um, 13. And how old are you, Mitchell? 13. And how did you two hook up with each other? Uh, well, we're, we're friends, and we started out with science, the Science Olympiad. It's like a national competition for uh, science, and we always had a passion for science, engineering, and biology 
Yeah, we, we were in the same class, so uh, it was science fair time in the school. So our teachers, they, they just put us together, and we were just researching on what we can do. So we thought of alternative energy because, as you said, it was a hot topic today. And uh, what school do you go to? We go to Bergen Arts and Science Charter School. It's located in Garfield, New Jersey. So you're not even in high school yet. What do you want to do? Do you want to continue with this particular project, or do you have do you have any specific kind of goals in mind for the future, or just you know you're interested in science? Well, uh, we're interested in science. Uh, I said we have a passion for it. You're pretty sure that you both want to become scientists eventually. Yeah, we're pretty sure. I mean, we always want to expand our horizon, and as of now, we want to have even more equipment just to pursue our passion and to find ways to just help everyone that we can, just help ourselves, help the country, because alternative fuels are going to be a big, important part of the world. We can't have greenhouse gases to continuously build up, and once they accumulate too much, it's going to cause severe damage to our whole planet. So we need to find a solution fast. You know, you both have used the word passion a couple of times about science. And when I was your age, baseball was the only thing I was particularly interested in. How how did you get so interested in science at this age? Well, we thought science is everywhere. It's, um, you know, whether it's a tree growing outside or an airplane flying over us, everything is made up of science. Like, science is the building block of anything. So, yeah, we wanted to, you know, really get into it because our world, it's going to be all about science, basically. Future jobs are going to be all about science and technology because that's what's, you know, going to make up our world, make it a better place. For more information about the Harlem Science Fair and opportunities in labs, go to www.harlemchildrenssociety.org. Now it's time to play Totally bogus here are four science stories only three are true see if you know which story is totally bogus story one that newly discovered possibly habitable exoplanet may not even exist story two malaysian astrophysicist maslin othman has been named by the un as earth's official ambassador to any aliens who land on our planet Story 3, monkeys helped make up security forces for the recent Commonwealth Games in India. And Story 4, cats that are born deaf have better vision than hearing cats do. (coughs) Time's up. Story 4 is true. Cats born deaf wind up seeing better than hearing cats do. Because parts of their brains, ordinarily devoted to peripheral hearing and motion detection, wind up being co-opted by the vision system. The work was published in the journal Nature Neuroscience. For more, check out the October 11th episode of the Daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science. Story 1 is true. The very existence of the exoplanet dubbed Gliese 581g has been called into question by astronomer Francesco Pepe, who was unable to find the planet in the data. He spoke at an International Astronomical Union Symposium on October 11th. More data and more data analysis should ultimately decide if Gliese is space oasis or just mirage. And story three is true. Security at the New Delhi Commonwealth Games did include 38 trained Langer monkeys. They were unarmed. 
and their function was to guard against incursions by smaller wild monkeys. All of which means that story two, about the astrophysicist Maslan Othman being named Earth's official alien greeter, is totally bogus. What is true is that there were numerous news accounts to the effect that Dr. Othman had indeed been named to such a post, but the United Nations Office for Outer Space Affairs denies that any such appointment exists. The purpose of that office is not to deal with aliens, but to promote international cooperation in the peaceful uses of outer space and space science and technology. Well, that's it for this episode. Get your science news at www.scientificamerican.com, where you can check out the multimedia look at artificial photosynthesis, based on an article in the current issue of Scientific American called Reinventing the Leaf. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet every time a new article hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam, S-C-I-A-M. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 